I'm entitling this message in this uncertain season. And something that the Lord has been laying on my heart, and even where this concept of laying the church on the altar comes from, comes from Genesis 22. And this is where Abraham, and very strangely enough, is asked by God to take his son, his one and only son, through whom this covenant that was cut with Abraham would be reckoned through. He was to lay Isaac on the altar. I want to explore this. But I want to say up front that the points of application with Genesis 22 for us today do not completely follow because of this season of uncertainty. We have the privilege of being able to look back in Genesis 22, and guess what, church? We know the end of the story, don't we? Woohoo! Isaac survives. It's just that we don't know. This is the uncertainty. There's uncertainty even as far as whether the church, God has the church being laid down or continue on. Then there's the uncertainty of what is Powerline going to look like. We don't know. And during this time of uncertainty, God is wanting to do something in every single one of our hearts, just like he did with Abraham. God, as I'm going to read here in just a moment, God sifted Abraham's heart. God sifted Abraham's heart. And we're going to see the points of application. But I mentioned to every single one of you, God is not sifting our church. That is a negative connotation as if something's bad and being rooted out. And that is not the case. God is not sifting the church. God is sifting our hearts so that what is bad in here, God can deal with and get rid of so that it was true in us by Christ remains. So I'm going to read this story and, and let's just walk through this because I tell you what, Abraham, I mean, can you imagine Abraham in this situation? This, this tremendous sense of uncertainty, even fear, because he knows he's laying his son on the altar and he's been asked to take his life. What? What God would ask a man to take his son's life? This just, it, it, it's like it, this, a train careening down a hill on the tracks, and you can just see the sparks flying on the brakes, flying from the brakes. What is going on here? There's a lot of confusion, I'm sure, that Abraham had, that we can have as we look at this passage. I hope that I'll be able to uh, provide some answers for some of our questions, but more beyond that, to be able to see how this passage would even relate to us. So, Follow me now. I'm going to read from Genesis 22, starting with verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there. Wow. As a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I will tell you about Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Now, when I say the boy, we don't know how old Isaac is. 
Some have suggested somewhere between 12 and 15, but we truly don't know. I doubt that he's a really young boy, and I doubt that he is probably uh, a fighting age, say about 20 or so. And I would say it's fair enough, maybe 12 to 15, but we truly don't know. But he does call him a boy here or a youth. And he says, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What do you say to your son? That's not in the text. What what would Abraham say? We're going to come back to this in a few minutes, but here's what he does say. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar. Wow, we need to come back to that sentence. On top of the, he bound his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the play, that place, the Lord will provide. Yahweh Yireh, or as many of us say, Jehovah Jireh. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the skies, as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servant with Isaac and set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Can I be honest with you as a pastor and one who has studied this passage quite a bit, but can surely say, I, I, I think I don't understand everything here. I look at it and I have some wonder. I have some questions. And you know what? Some of those questions, I'm just going to have to wait until I get to heaven to get an answer to. And maybe some of you have some questions and I may not answer them. And I'm going to just let you know, at some points, I'm going to offer some speculation. Because I don't feel as if God is obligated when he shares a story through someone, even though it's inspired, infallible, and inerrant, without error, he's not obligated to include every detail. 
And there are some details. And can I just say there are some really important details that are purposefully left out. And we are left to our imagination about well, what happened and why. But what we must do is this. Whether we speculate and think it through, we're going to have to come down to some really important principles. I'm going to touch on some of those. But we then need to walk away and say, how does it apply to me? What is the significance of this passage? First of all, God tells Abraham to go to the region of Moriah. Now, you might be thinking, where on earth is Moriah? Well, let me tell you where Moriah is. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we are told about Mount Moriah. And that this is where Abraham took his son, to Mount Moriah. In the region of Moriah, maybe it was a mountain range called Moriah, but it was a specific mountain, Moriah. If you look at verse 14, this mountain is also called the mountain of the Lord. There are only two mountains in the Bible that are called the mountain of the Lord. That's Mount Sinai, and I would venture to say that that is not this but also Mount Zion. The significance of this is that this right here, Mount Moriah, is where Solomon built the temple. So we know it's Jerusalem, it's Mount Zion. This is where the temple, where future sacrifices for the people of Israel would be made, but it's more than this. Get a load of this, church. It is here on Mount Moriah where God sent his son to allow him to be crucified by the hands of evil men so that he would die and three days later be raised to life. This, in essence, gives us a picture of Jesus. Isaac, the one and only son of Abraham. I think you see the picture here. Crystallize it a little bit more. Laying his son on the altar. Jesus was laid on a cross. The wood on Isaac's back, perhaps representing this wood of the cross. But we immediately encounter something rather odd. Because Isaac does not die on the altar. And Jesus did die on that cross. So I believe that seeing the a picture of the gospel here is valid, but I'm going to tell you what, be careful. For example, who is God, the father, in this picture here? In a sense, he's Abraham. He's Abraham laying his son down. But did God have to test his own heart? Because that's what God did with Abraham. No, of course he didn't. Who is God then in this passage? Well, we're going to have to say, of course, he's God the Father. So God the Father is represented by God the Father in this passage, but he is also, to a degree, represented by Abraham. Now, who is Jesus then in this passage? Well, Jesus, to a degree, would be Isaac. Isaac being laid on the altar, <coughs> on the wood of the altar. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that his purpose is to die, just as Jesus' purpose was to die on the cross. And that his father was the one who was ultimately in charge of this and having his son laid on the altar, even as the heavenly father was the one ultimately responsible, Jesus died by God the Father's set purpose, Scripture tells us. 
But Isaac didn't die on the altar. So Jesus is not only as the one and only son of the heavenly father, Isaac here, but he is also the ram. So do you see something here? The first, if we're going to even apply this to our lives, when we try to do it with the gospel, it is not a one-to-one correspondence. Abraham doesn't just represent the father, but God the father represents the father. <laughs> Jesus is not just represented by Isaac, but he is represented by the ram as well. So there's not a one-to-one correspondence, but here's what you're going to find. What we do see are the principles of this chapter fitting a one-to-one correspondence to the gospel. It is Jesus as the one and only son. It is Jesus being crucified on the cross, but it is also Jesus as the ram, here's the principle, who takes Isaac's place. So you and I need to be seen as Isaac as well. We are the ones on the cro- on that altar. We are the ones who deserved death. Now, Isaac didn't deserve death, but you and I do. But the ram, Jesus, took my place and he took your place. That's the gospel. You see, Jesus, though we deserved death because of our sin and eternal separation from God, that's the bad news. But see, the gospel, which means good news, is this, that God has provided an ultimate and final ram of all the ages, and it is found in Jesus Christ, and he is the one laid upon that altar as our sacrifice in our stead, and he took the blows for you and me that we deserved. We deserve this. We deserved the wrath of God upon our sins. God can't just look at you and say, well, you know, I just love you so much. I mean, after all, God is love. And I'm just going to, I'm going to just magically wash away your sins. The Bible says, and it's a clear principle, and it is embedded in the very essence of who God is. It is a truth from everlasting to everlasting that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Life for life. This begins to touch on it in a way that is beyond my understanding. This concept of God's holiness and the demands of his holiness. And because I'm not completely holy, when I start trying to grasp the holiness of God, it's, it's somewhat slippery. I, I want to, but I, I have to confess, I, I don't completely understand it. Because here's, a, here's an unholy man And I'm only made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ, but I am, I continue to sin, though I don't desire that. I've been rescued and freed and forgiven of my sins, but I am trying to grasp as an unholy man the holiness of God, and I can't do it completely. And so in his holiness, we deserve this just punishment. We deserved it, church. But the ram caught in the thicket was placed on that altar. Jesus was provided for you and me. That is the gospel. Those are the principles. There's more here, but those are the principles of the gospel embedded in this story that if we flesh out, we can see how they play out in Jesus, in the Father, in us, our deserve, our deservedness uh, of punishment. But God's saying, nope, because of the shedding of blood. There is now forgiveness of sins made available. And the Bible then says our response to this good news is faith. Even that we're going to see here, Abraham's faith. It was 
little bit different, a little bit differently nuanced, if you will, here than the faith that we're asked for, but faith nevertheless. I want us to look at some of these principles now. We see them how they play out one-to-one. The principles, not the people in here, but the principles, how they play out one-to-one in the gospel. Now, let's see how they might play out in us, where we're at. Give me just one moment here. I've kind of preached ahead of myself here in my notes, so give me just one more moment. What we really see happening here is Abraham's heart is being sifted. It's being, the word here is tested. But I need you to understand, it's not like a math test where you get some answers right and some answers wrong, and hopefully you get enough answers right so you can get an A or at least a high score right. That's that's not what's going on here. This is, this testing is like when you test silver. When you test silver, you're refining silver. You bring it to a boiling point or high enough temperature where the dross or the impurities in the silver rise to the top of the cauldron or whatever it's in, and then the silversmith scoops off the dross. I'm just using a different word. I'm not using the word refining, though we could do that. I'm using the word sifting. How is God... How will God sift our hearts? I believe in order for us to understand how he's going to do it, we need to understand this passage right here. I want you to imagine for a moment being Abraham. And you're you're going through this test, this sifting of your heart, You don't know that it's a sifting, though. Abraham didn't know this. Abraham truly believed he was going to sacrifice his son. And this was hard for him. He prepared for it. His mindset was, my son is as good as dead to me. What do you do with that? Isaac was the son of the promise. Wait a second, God. So I hear you telling me I'm supposed to sacrifice my one and only son, but you have previously promised me that it's going to be through Isaac that all these blessings that you have promised me will be reckoned. They're going to come to through Isaac to a future generation, many future generations. You're actually going to bring forth a nation from me, and you're going to do it through Isaac. But if he's dead... Let me just say this. If you were to look back in verse 5, Abraham is speaking to one of his servants, and this is what he says, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. He's, He's pointing, I'm sure, to Mount Moriah. We, Isaac and I, we will worship, and then I will come back to you. Is that what he says? You hear a ring of faith in his words, don't you? We, we will come back to you. Hmm. Why would he say this? Now, let me add this. When Isaac asks him, hey, dad, 
I see the, the wood. I see the fire. So probably a little torch there. But where's the lamb? And Abraham responds, the lamb, excuse me, God himself will provide the lamb. Now, I want us to be careful here. See, he's not just simply saying, I know the end of the story. It's not like God gave him some prophetic word. Eh, God's going to work it out. I'm not going to really have to take my son's life, so I'm not going to tell him. Yep, God's going to provide the lamb. See, he may very well not know. And he may just simply say, God is going to provide the lamb, either literally or metaphorically. In other words, that lamb may be you, Isaac. But what he cannot do is simply say, ah, I'm not going to really take my son's life. I really believe that God is going to provide some other lamb because that negates any test. He can walk through this casually like, so? I want to just stop right there for a moment. Church, when I shared with you that I believe that me, the leadership team, all of us are laying our Isaac, our church, on the altar. Abraham believed him to be good as dead. That is scary. As a church, if we just think, ah, it's not a big deal. God's going to work it out, I'm sure. And No, hang on. I'm not saying that the church is being laid down. I just don't know what, is, what God is doing. And it creates such uncertainty. But something arose within Abraham's heart, and that was faith. God, your perfect will, whatever that exactly is, is going to be worked out. And I, I man, this, I just don't understand this. This is so uncertain. That's where we're at, church. I'm not trying to fill your hearts with fear. God's perfect will will come about. I'm just saying, this, is, this isn't just a laying the church on the altar, God's sake. No, we really are. We really are. Abraham really laid his son on the altar. I'm going to offer two suggestions here. One of which is based on this phrase right here, God himself will provide the lamb. And maybe there is a hint that even though I am called to do this, maybe God has another way. Because after all, my son has got to live. But the author of Hebrews suggests an alternative to that. I'm not saying that Abraham didn't think maybe God will do something different. But the author of Hebrews does say this. I want to read to you. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He at least laid him on the altar. We know he didn't take his life, but he offered him so that Isaac, in essence, was as good as dead. He who had received the promises, that was Abraham, he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Look at this next verse. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. The author of Hebrews 
He's looking at this passage just like we are, and he comes to the conclusion, Abraham went to Mount Moriah, and he truly believed that he was going to plunge the knife into his son, freaking out, right? And even though his son dies, but wait a second, God is going to fulfill his promise. The author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us Abraham reasoned Though I, kill, though I plunge that knife into my son, God will raise him from the dead. Abraham, in faith, truly feeling though very uncertain, you can have faith in tremendous uncertainty. He binds his son's hands and feet. Now, I want you to think about this. Because if we're going to see the application of this, we need to climb into this story just a little bit more. And I'm going to just let you know, I'm going to, I'm going to speculate here a little bit. And maybe I could call it sanctified conjecture. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to climb into it, and I see certain conclusions. But can I just ask you, if you're Isaac... And your dad, let's say you're 12, your dad starts to bind your hands and your feet. What are you going to think? Wait, 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 dad, are you psycho? What are you doing to me? Can't you imagine there, there is a conversation that took place? There had to be. I can't imagine anything. When I, I have a son, I would have a conversation with him. If my son were 12 years old, he was a pretty big boy at 12. Here's what I couldn't do. I would not be able to bind his hands and his feet and lay him on an altar because now I've got to strap him or tie him to the altar. Don't crawl off this altar, son. I've got to do this. And he's screaming, Dad, what are you doing? Can't you imagine this? But Isaac, there's no, there, there's nothing or a hint about that. And I have to say, how can there not be unless Abram, what is not recorded here is Abraham and Isaac had a conversation. Now, I'm going to speculate here. What could he tell him so that his son doesn't struggle? And I'm going to guarantee you that if Abraham doesn't know what his dad's doing and he sees the knife and now he's binding him and he's putting him on the altar, he's going to kick and scream and he's going to run and he's going to tell his servants, my dad is crazy. I thought his visions of God were real, but they're just delusions. He is psycho. We got to get out of here. And I'm imagining this a little bit with a little bit of evidence and some substance because I have had to try and do this with a 12-year-old. Not sacrifice him, no, bind him. <laughs> Let me just quickly tell you that story. See, <laughs> I had my own lawn business. I worked my way through seminary through this, but during the winter months, it got a little bit slow. So I worked for Portsmouth Psychiatric Unit for three months. I worked with 12-year-old boys who were a danger to society and a danger to themselves. I had to learn how to use leather straps to bind these 12-year-old boys should they go wacko and freak out. And it, that happened on two occasions. I had to bind, in those two months, I had to bind two different boys that I had actually been ministering to. Don't, don't tell the, the managers there because they don't know about this, but I ministered to them about Jesus. 
I'm not sure I was supposed to, but I did it anyway. But these two boys, for different reasons, just went haywire. With ne- One was a, a really wiry boy and had some real strength to him. The other boy, not so much. But with neither of these boys, could I do it by myself? I couldn't. You, you, I, and I was a wrestler. I knew how to immobilize someone, but I couldn't do it sufficiently. You bring their hands behind them. You tie them up with the leather straps, and then you have to grab their feet. So can you imagine Abraham tying his sons up while he's screaming and struggling? If they hang on there, and he holds, and he's trying to grab his feet, and then he gets his hands free while he's trying to bind his feet. Now he's got to bind his hands again, and it's back and forth and back. And it's like, this isn't working. Help. I mean, that's what I had to do. Some people had to come and help me. I, I, I think we need to see like a reality that's going on here. We're not aware of any visitation of God to Isaac to give him the inside scoop. But for some reason, Isaac allows his father to bind his hands and bind his feet and lay him on the altar on top of the wood and not be bound to the wood because he's going to crawl off frantically and run for it. Isaac, to some degree, enters now into this faith with his father. Now, if you, you're free to disagree with me. Here's why this is significant. See, in applying this, and I truly believe that God's original purpose was for us to see ourselves as Isaac on the altar, surrendered to God, hands and feet bound, ready for death. Kill everything in me that is not of you, God. And I tell you what, when we first become Christians, it's everything, all right? It is everything. It is the old me. It is the old Mike Curtis at age 14 surrendered to God. And as Paul said, I died and and I no longer lived, but Christ now lived in me. The old Paul, the old man, as scripture calls us, he is dead, When I became a Christian, I allowed God to bind my hands and my feet and lay me on the altar. Because everything in me screamed, don't do it. But somehow, God, there was a surrender in my heart by his grace, and I allowed him to put me on that altar. But you see, a ram was provided for me. But in a sense, though Jesus died for my sins, I truly did die. When you became a Christian, you truly did die. When we're talking about laying the church on the altar, it's not just a church as in an entity. It is us individually. You are on the altar. And during this very uncertain time, can I just ask you, what is God putting to death? What is he sifting in your heart? God did this with Abraham. I can, it doesn't tell us he did it with Isaac, so I'm speculating here, but can you not imagine that Abraham and Isaac had a conversation so that there was no struggle, so that Isaac complied, and he did so by faith, and this is what we need, church. You are the Isaac. You're on the altar. You're letting God sift your heart, and you are complying. You're not screaming and shouting, though sometimes we might. I get that. Yes. Yeah, we're going to sometimes scream and shout, but God brings us to that place where we zip the lips, where we just say, by faith. And I don't, this is so hard. But God, I'm going to let you 
pick up the knife and I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do. And at least at some point, and here is the tremendous measure of faith, not just for Abraham, I'm going to plunge the knife into you, you're going to be raised from the dead, but Isaac, I believe, trusted his father who had had numerous visions of God. Okay, if God said this to you, but he also said, you're going to bless all nations through me, I too will trust. You're free to disagree with that, but I can't see it otherwise. And I'm just simply saying, there was some element of faith in Isaac. It's not what the author of Hebrews focuses on or Genesis But you climbing on the altar, I'm going to suggest to you, you're going to need faith. Now, I've got a few minutes left here. I want to ask this question as soon as I find it. How will God sift our hearts? Or better, what might he sift? I'm going to just let you know right now. The very thing that Abraham wrestled with was the very sovereignty of God. God, you're asking me to do something. This is impossible. God, you must be wrong. You're telling me to do this, but you promise. Can't happen. You're wrong, God. Can't you imagine the possibility of that? But Abraham didn't. He didn't argue with God that we're aware of. He didn't argue with God. He didn't stomp his feet speculating here a little bit, he probably didn't tell his wife. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm speculating. I, maybe she had tremendous faith. You know, forgive me, Sarah, if, you know, if, I, if I missed it here, but okay. His wife's name, by the way, was Sarah. You may know that. But he, moved, he, he presses forward with this faith to obey God, to obey God. See, The obedience was the outward working of his faith. And that's what's going to happen. As you're on the altar and you're having faith, the outward working of that will be obedience. Okay? So whatever God shows you in this time of laying the church, laying yourselves as well on the altar, can you trust God? Can you trust his sovereignty? that he really is in control of every facet of this process, of this season of uncertainty. He's in control. The second thing, I truly believe Abraham not only saw him as sovereign, but as loving. He's faithful, but he's loving as well. As a matter of fact, the Bible says God is love. He's not just loving, he is love. Everything about God, who he is, the fact that he is faithful and just and holy flows from his love because that's his essence. God's punishment, his wrath, his justice, his holiness flows from his love. It it all comes back to the fact that God is love. And if you believe this, when you're resting on that altar, instead of kicking and screaming and, God, this is too hard. I don't know what you're doing. I've had those moments with God where I've wrestled with him and I've complained and I've even shouted, so you know. And God 
has had to calm my heart with those two important truths. Mike, I am sovereign. Can you trust me? I am loving and only have your best intentions at heart. I believe during this time, th those are the foundational truths. Everything is going to flow from those two things. God is in control, and he's powerful and sovereign, and yet he is so filled with love. But in this situation, it doesn't feel loving. It doesn't feel like you're in control, but he is. Abraham had this, God, it doesn't feel like you're in control. It doesn't feel like you're loving. You're asking me to do something that I don't want to do. This is too hard. He trusted in God's sovereignty. He trusted in God's love. Now I'm going to get really personal here. And I'm going to tell you a story about me. Because I have been in that situation more than once where I am laying on the altar and God is dealing with me or dealing with my business or dealing with the church itself. And I, me, were on the altar. And it's been hard. And I've had to go back to these two principles. But then God began to refine and sift my heart. Can I just share with you, and this is the example, I'm going to share with you one of those things that God had to deal with me. As a pastor, I had to come to grips with this truth. Mike Curtis is not defined by the position that he holds as a pastor. I cannot afford to find my value in being a pastor. I can't. I can't preach so that people will say, Pastor Mike, what a wonderful sermon. Good sermon, Pastor Mike. You know my feelings about that. Please just don't. Oh, good sermon. Thank you so much. To me, those are words a bit trite. I preached that. Someone missed the sermon in the that very day, Pastor Mike, or, or the next week. Pastor Mike, that was such a good sermon. People around me kind of laughed, and I had to cue them in on what the inside joke was. Well, so, but you know what? You cannot afford to find your value in what you do here at Powerline or even your relationships at Powerline. And the fact that they just, these friends of yours speak so much life and truth, but if that relationship to some degree changes, will I find myself somehow less valuable because they're, they're not there as much to build me up? No. No. Leaders, those of you who lead in any capacity, even as a mom or a dad, your sense of identity, your value as a person is not found in who you are as a mom or dad. As much as I love being a dad, I, I can't find my sense of value and identity in being a dad, in being a business owner, in being a pastor, in being a friend. I can't. I find my value in only one place, and that is in Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, in Christ, it is not truly Mike Curtis. It is the dead Mike Curtis, Christ living in me, and it is, my value is now found in him and found in the fact that he says, I love you. God so loved the world, Mike Curtis, Hillel, and Peter, God so loved you, Gracie, that he sent his one and only son. I find my value in that truth that will never change. 
See, all of these other things, being a dad or being a, a husband or being a pastor or being a business owner, those are subject to change. They can be. So if I'm not a pastor, does that mean that somehow I just don't have any more value? Of course not. But here is what I have struggled with. And it, it, I'm going to share with you a picture inside my heart, but can I assure you, don't freak out, but every pastor has to face this. I would venture to say that every leader, business, whatever, has to face this, and others in varying degrees has to face this. And it's this concept of success. If my business is successful, I'm successful. And I feel good about myself. Do you know why you feel good about yourself when your business is successful? Because people look up to success, at least in America. Wow, really? Maybe if you're really successful, your business success story will find its way into a, a business book. I mean, there's nothing wrong. I mean, I, val I, I love Jack, John Maxwell. He's one of my favorite authors. I have about 20 of his books, just so you know. I love him. And he tells many stories of success. But you see, success in the business realm does not carry over to success in the kingdom of God. And I have wrestled at times with this concept of success. And what is that? I wrestled with it very early as a young man in my 20s and early 30s. God just took me through seasons in which, wow, things really just didn't work out as I'd hoped. And God just had to deal with this in my life. He's had to deal with that this year in my life. Again, and I'm almost 60. I may not wrestle with it as much. I have this feeling, though, that for me and maybe even all of us, this finding our identity in success as a dad or as a mom or as a friend, as a business owner, finding our identity in that success gives us value. Or at least we think it does. And I'm just here to tell you it doesn't. Being a successful pastor, and I got to get into that definition, does not mean, does not in any way touch the value of who I am. It doesn't. Can I just go a little bit deeper? I preached the sermon, I think it was about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. And it was looking at the life of Jonah and the life of Noah and then comparing them. I preached far more to me during those two sermons than I did to you. Maybe I, I, I'm blessed if God touched your heart. But I was preaching that sermon to me because I was wrestling. I looked at Jonah. Here is a man who wins 120,000 Ninevites Worshippers of the god Dagon, he's a fish god. They're idolaters. They hate Israel. And Jonah, by the way, is an Israelite. Mm, that was the rub. And now he's called to preach. Repent, because if you don't repent, God's going to destroy your entire city. 120,000. Well, there was at least 120,000. But the book of Jonah tells us that 120,000 repented. When Jesus talks about it, it really seems if this was a genuine repentance. Within a very short amount of time, maybe two generations, however, that city changed, went back to their sin, and God did bring judgment. Wow, what a shame. 
We read about it in Nahum. But in Jonah, in Jonah, we see repentance. He is a prophet of God. People look at the prophet of Jonah, and if if we're not careful, we say, Jonah was a model of success, 120,000. Wow. Well, let's take a look at Noah. Noah is called by Peter a preacher of righteousness. While he was building this ark and maybe a little bit before, he preached to the people to repent. Because if they didn't repent, whoever didn't would be caught up in the flood and would perish. Can I ask you this? How many people perished? Well, maybe a better question. How many people made it safe aboard because they had repented on the ark? Eight people. Woo, man, going to write a book about that. What a story of success. Man, for all we know, Noah's wife led all six of the, you know, three of his sons and three of their daughters-in-law to Christ or, or to, to worship the one true God. And maybe Noah didn't lead any of We don't know. I'm speculating here. Eight people, that's it. Now, his father had died five years before that, and I think he was a godly man. Methuselah, you remember Methuselah, 969 years that he lived. He died the year of the flood, and I'm sure that he was a godly man. Just anyway, I won't get into that. But those two godly men, God took. So let's look at your fruit, Noah. How many, how many of you, how many got saved in your ministry? Just my family. But can I just tell you this? That Jonah is considered the reluctant prophet and disobedient, though he eventually repented and he was obedient. And I'm so glad for that. But Noah, Noah found favor with God. And he walked with God for over 900 years. He did everything that God told him to do. I can't fit into that category. I truly believe that at the end of the age, at the day of judgment, that seat of the judgment seat of Christ, and, and again, I'm speculating, but I would imagine Noah would receive more rewards than Jonah. Work with me a little bit right now. Can you imagine the book of Jonah being submitted to a publisher today? Sitting down with Jonah. Jonah. Your book was great. It's going to hit the market. It is such a success story. It's going to motivate so many people. We love it. And Jonah's like, Phew. yeah, we did, did pretty good. Yep. It's only four chapters, sweet, short book, but to the point, right? And they said, yeah, about those four chapters. We've been looking at chapter one, and um, it doesn't quite line up with our idea of success. I mean, can I just ask you, when God told you to go to Nineveh, did you really run in the opposite direction? Yeah, I really did. Jonah. That kind of reluctance and disobedience, that's not going to sell? That's not success? So we've made a, we're going we're gonna to cut out chapter one, okay? We're going to cut it out. It's, it's not going to sell. Okay, at least I got three chapters. Yeah, about chapter two. Did God really vomit you out of a fish's mouth onto dry ground? And, and you were like a sign to the Ninevites so they could tell that you had been in the guts of a fish for three days. You didn't just have to tell them. You looked the part. Because, by the way, church, Jesus said that he was a sign to that generation. Okay? 
I mean, Jonah, you're, you're aware that these people, many of these people that are going to read this book, because we want to market it not to, just to the Jews, but to everybody. A lot of them worship Dagon, the fish god. And, you know, this is really going to be offensive for you to say or for them to read in your book that God had a fish vomit you out of his, out of his mouth onto the shore. That's going to be highly offensive, and that's not going to sell. So we're going to cut out chapter two. Hope you don't mind that. Well, okay, at least half the book is still there intact. Yeah. We've been looking at chapter four lately. Jonah, we're trying to sell success here. Did you really cop an attitude when God did this? I mean, look at 220,000 and you complained? Did you? Oh, my word. Yeah, I really did. But you see, God was, I don't want to hear that. That's not going to sell. We're cutting out chapter four. I've got only one chapter. Yeah, well, let's just hope that the chapter succeeds. But to be honest with you, um, one chapter in the Bible just doesn't sound really good. And God forbid it should follow the prophet Obadiah, who, cut only, who wrote only one chapter, which, by the, word, by the way, church, it does. God forbid that that should happen, and now there's just two, two, two books in the Bible, single chapter. And so we're going to ask that you elaborate a little bit. Just tell us a little bit more about this success. And by the way, one word that we try not to use is, is this word repent. Okay, That's just offensive. And so after a while, Jonah realizes that maybe this concept of success is very different than how the world views success. See, this is where I had to come to. And church, God has had to break me. I had found my identity. And if I'm not careful, I can step back into that. Here's the horrible thing about human nature, about us not yet fully redeemed in Christ. We are redeemed. Romans 8 says our bodies will be redeemed at the end of the age, right? I am not, I'm not completely pure or holy. I'm not, and I struggle. And you know what? I can still struggle with this concept of success and failure. And I can still feel like a failure sometimes. And I've got a, a reasonable guess that maybe a few of you do as well. Or maybe all of you do. And we can wrestle with this concept of success and failure. When we sin, we can feel like a failure. Really, God, again? Even though God has really done an amazing job setting us free with me, the world's definition of success, I can still step into it at times. And I have this year. And I'm laying myself on the altar as well. And I'm just saying, God, again, just sift this heart of mine. I've been in touch with a pastor of Harvest Network International that I have my ordination through and, and so on. And, and I go to their conferences. And so I've been reaching out to this particular elder who helps oversee the network of churches. And the first thing out of his mouth when I shared this with him was, Mike, you need to know you are not a failure. Something rose up within me. Of course I don't feel like I'm a failure. Liar! 
I, I really didn't try to lie. I was just being fake with myself, to be honest with you. I'm not a failure. Though that's true, I had felt that way. And even after I spoke with him, I don't know, maybe several weeks, I felt that way again. It's like, ah, Lord, just help me find my identity and my sense of value only in you. Because that truth of God's love for me, that is the only thing that counts. That is the only thing that says to me how valuable I am. And he demonstrated, he didn't just say, Mike, I love you. I love you this much. And I tell my grandkids and my kids when they were younger, I love you this much around the world a million times. And they came up with the cute reply, well, daddy, I love you this much around the world a million and one time. Oh, you know, but God, Jesus says to the world, I love you this much. And then he died. You see, that is a demonstration of God's love. It's not just red words in my New Testament Bible. It is the complete story of the cross, the gospel. It is Isaac laid on the altar. It is the ram provided from the thicket. It is Jesus dying for me. That's where I find my value. Now, before I end, and I'm way over time, I'm just going to simply say this. In the end of what God does in this, or excuse me, in the, in the process of God doing this, I'm going to suggest to you that God is wanting something inside of you to rise up. A trumpet call is being blown. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few months, but I am praying for us that in this sifting, something will rise up within us, a fight, a fight for the kingdom of God in politically, in the political landscape. I don't know what America is going to look like. There may be tremendous darkness coming to America or not. I don't know. But this I do know, the kingdom of God is far greater. And I want, and I believe God is calling to his church, rise up in this time of darkness, laying on the altar. In a sense, rise up while you're laying down. I don't know how that's going to work. But rise, let a fight rise up within you to say, God, totally destroy this thing called the flesh in me. Whatever it is you're trying to show me in this time, it's on the altar Maybe it's your definition of success. Maybe it's where you find your value. That is on the altar. Whatever God is going to speak to you, it's on the altar. And you are dying. And Christ will live in you. But let a fight rise up within you. A call to arms, if you will. Battle stations. Regardless of what power line looks like, we are moving forward in the kingdom of God to see his kingdom come here on earth, just as in heaven. Just as in heaven. His rule and reign in Mike Curtis's heart, just as it is perfectly in heaven. Wow. Mm. Can you receive that, church? Can you stand with me right now? Can you allow God, just like <clears throat> Abraham willingly Trusting God laid his son in the altar. Can you, like Isaac, not kicking and screaming and fighting that I can see, be willing to let God lay you on that altar? Father, I just ask you, Lord, may God arise, his enemies be scattered, 
May you sift me. May you refine me. May you refine us. And in this time of uncertainty that we're going through as a church, maybe deal with some of our fears. Maybe deal with some of our anger against you. Maybe deal with some of this always wanting to find our sense of identity, our satisfaction, our life purpose in things other than you. Deal with that. We may not be kicking and screaming. We're, we're wrestling, God. We're wrestling. This is real. And I need you to take the knife. I need you to cut out of me what doesn't belong. We need this, God. Refine. Sift. Do the surgery that you need in me. Would you do that, please, God? I'm speaking on behalf of the church right now, Father. I trust you. We trust you. You are faithful. You're so sovereign. You're powerful beyond imagination. But you are also so good and loving. And this is going to work out in some way for my good because you're loving. But I can't see it. Not right now. And I lift it up to you. My life, this church, it's yours. In the midst of this turmoil, God, grant me peace. Speak some truths to me that I need to hear right now in this season of uncertainty. Speak from your heart to me, maybe as I'm having my quiet time, listening to a sermon, hearing someone online. Speak truth of healing and encouragement, death and life. Speak this to me. And in the end, may I not live Christ in me, the hope of glory in Jesus' name.